Thank you, Damon. Technically, <laughs> it's nine, the ninth in a nine-part series. We're going to close out Church and Science this morning. Uh, it was six, seven, almost eight years ago that we started this. Who's counting? I mean, it's, I would say it seems like just yesterday, but it doesn't seem like just yesterday. It seems like a long time ago. But uh, anyway, patience is a virtue. Um, now, I, I want to actually have a, I have a bit of a preamble here. So one of the things is that I'm going to be reading some quotes, a number of quotes, both from secular sources and we have a passage. Um, and uh, I made some edits recently, like last second edits. And so I'm probably going to be spending a lot of time with my face down in the computer, which I am very aware is not an ideal experience for people, for you. So I apologize ahead of time for that, about that, but I would rather tell you that and be upfront about it so you'll know why it is I'm staring at my screen and not checking in with all of you um, as much as I should be. <clears throat> uh, if you want, you can um, maybe, uh, yeah, go ahead. If you've got a bookmark or something, or if you've got you know, a smart device, uh, Luke chapter 19. But we're not going to come do it until the end. Luke 19. Get yourself ready for Luke 19. By the way, this is the second time we visited our good friend Zacchaeus in this Church and Science series. It's not a coincidence either. I very much appreciate the invitation to speak again. I will say that we may have, I'm open to an epilogue, okay? And I s said this a number of times. I certainly said it back in part one, seven years ago, that I'm not a biblical scholar. I don't have the training that Damon does. I want to get your, if I make a mistake or I say something or I synthesize information in a way that you think is faulty, you should tell me. So um, if that comes up, then I can save space for an epilogue if you invite me back again and, or an errata, whatever you want to call it, and we can hash out maybe things where you feel I left holes or didn't provide enough clarity or maybe just came to a, what you think is a wrong conclusion. <clears throat> okay, two semi-rhetorical questions. <clears throat> is it possible for someone to be cynical about cynical people without being a hypocrite? That's the first one. Is it possible for someone to make, this is the second one, is it possible for someone to make a convincing, detailed, 10-point argument against legalism? I thought I would get more of a reaction out of that. It's a lot of, there's a lot of conditioning in there. It's kind of complicated. Yeah, I don't think you can. I mean, it's semi-rhetorical. There's no such thing as a purely rhetorical question. <laughs> Every question has some sort of answer or promotes some sort of answer. So I don't think it's possible, and so I might be painting myself into a corner here a little bit with part nine. But we're going to start, uh, what better place to start? Well, there are better places to start, but a good place to start, at least where we're going to start here for the sermon, is Plato's Allegory of the Cave. May seem a little bit out in left field. Okay, now, this is a story that we're all familiar with, Plato's Allegory of the Cave. We've all heard it at one time or another, or we've heard people talk about it, even if we didn't, have never read Republic, Plato's Republic. Um, Republic was published by Plato, it was estimated uh, maybe 200 years after the authorship of uh, Ezekiel, give or take a few decades, just to put things in context with the current series that we have on the uh, book of Ezekiel. Republic earlyish in the 4th century BC. Um, the allegory is fleshed out in quite a bit of detail and it's actually kind of complicated, much more complicated than people give credit uh, for. And one of the reasons is that it's part of a larger work, like I said, Republic, the larger work. It's part six, there's a series of parts, and it uses, well, it's an allegory, it uses metaphors. And the metaphors are linked or they're similar to but not identical with other metaphors that are fleshed out throughout the work. So it really leaves a lot open to the imagination. But a very short summary of the allegory of the cave uh, would be that it simply challenges us to question the nature of material reality. That's kind of the boil down. But for our purposes today, we want a little bit more detail. <clears throat> so we've got a cave. cave. And uh, this cave would be lightless except there's a single source of light. It is a dim flame. And um, there, are, there are, the easiest way to describe this is that there are three realms in this cave, three realms. The first realm is what I'm going to call just puppets. They're puppets. 
And these puppets are controlled by invisible, or hidden, I'll say hidden, invisible, cannot be seen, puppeteers. So the puppets, you got not puppets, we all know what puppets are. There's some things are timeless, I guess. And then, so they're controlled by hidden puppeteers. Hidden puppeteers. The second realm are the shadows that the puppets cast on a wall of the cave from the flame. Single source of light, flame. And then, of course, I mean, what sort of allegory would this be if we didn't have the sunlit world, the real world, outside the cave? So those are the three realms. There are um, central characters, and the central characters in Plato's allegory of the cave are what he calls prisoners. These prisoners have been trapped in this cave since a very young age, and they cannot see each other, nor can they see any other part of this cave except the wall upon which the shadows are, the shadows, the shadows, the shadows are cast from the puppets, from the flame. So the allegory, so that's, there's more, okay? not a whole lot more for our purposes today, but uh, the allegory continues with speculation concerning what would happen if a prisoner, one of the prisoners, was freed. Well, so the first thing, if you freed a prisoner and they were able to sort of see around the cave, they would see the fire. They would see the flame. And the flame, the light from the flame, would be much brighter than what they're used to seeing with the shadows. And anyway, oh, by the way, the allegory of the Republic includes a lot of, it's like dialectic. There's dialogues. There's a dialogue, um, which kind of adds a, a more facets and dimension to the metaphors. But in any case, so this freed prisoner would see the fire. They, their vision would be impeded because of the bright light. If we drag the prisoner outside into the sunlit world of the cave, the sunlight would blind them temporarily. And eventually, after a while, their eyes would adjust to the light, and then they would be just awed by the spectacle of the world around them. I mean, how vastly different this world around them would be from the shadows of the puppets in the cave. However, there's a twist. Um, if this prisoner, this prisoner, I would think, would be compelled to go back and tell the freed prisoner to tell the other prisoners about this spectacular new reality that he or she had discovered. Okay. Prisoner would enter the cave. The darkness, they would be essentially sightless. The darkness would be uh, overwhelming. It would take a long time because, I mean, the sun, a dark cave, sun, a dark cave. You wouldn't be able to see because of the darkness. And the other prisoners would naturally conclude that the outside world, call, call the freed prisoner a proselyte, right? Now they're proselytizing about this realm that no one else could possibly imagine having stared at the shadows of the puppets for the, basically their whole lives. But the pr other prisoners would see that the returning proselyte couldn't see and would conclude that this outside world that this freed prisoner, the proselyte, is advocating was extremely undesirable because it causes injury. It causes you to lose your eyesight. <clears throat> Part of the ingenuity, I left a lot of stuff out. Okay, there's, it's, it's titled Republic, the larger work, and it's actually very political. Um, but uh, part of the ingenuity of the allegory of the cave is that for the prisoners, the shadows are reality. Okay? For the prisoners, the shadows of the puppets on the wall, that's their reality. This, of course, is a metaphor. You kind of get where this kind of the, the whole idea here is that this is a metaphor for our experience of the material world. Okay, and you may be thinking, maybe some of you already know this, uh, that the allegory has reappeared throughout history and other works that have adapted it, some of the themes uh, in popular culture fairly recently, um, and probably most notably is uh, the movie The Matrix. The movie The Matrix. The shadows on the cave wall. The blue pill. Okay, the greater reality beyond the cave, the red pill. Okay, so now we're going to jump, okay, so that's it for the allegory of the cave, but hopefully the threads will sort of connect to where we're headed here. So we're going to jump ahead, historically anyway, uh, 2,000 years, about, maybe a little bit less, maybe about 1,900 years. That's the great thing about history. When you're at a point in time, you, can, you have the luxury of just pot, like forward wind, rewind on history. You can just bounce all over the place. So that's nice. So we're going to jump ahead 2,000 years. Um, if there's something that I'm hoping... Everyone takes away just one thing from, by the time we conclude, nine 
sermons in this series, Church and Science, there's one thing that I hope we take away is that human scientific problem solving is not new. Okay? You'll even hear, I, I see this, I saw this in a textbook where they were saying that this big pivotal moment, the scientific revolution, sort of completely revolutionized the way people think. Okay? That's totally nonsense. Okay? People have been innovating, using experience to solve very complicated problems for thousands of years. Okay? The scientific revolution did not just magically rewire everybody's cortex. Okay? Um, and as a corollary, the reason that, I mean, there's the primary reason that the present world of today looks so different than the world of the past, even if you just go back 100 years, 200 years, namely technology. The one thing that's different is not that we are different intrinsically as people, it's because we've accumulated knowledge. We have amassed knowledge. And included in this knowledge that we've amassed is, of course, the ability to amass and store and dispense and distribute more knowledge. Okay, so this is about 500 years ago. They call modernity. Enter the era of modernity. So we have a, a number, uh, a confluence of a number of different um, institutions, practices, even inventions. I'll list a few here. I always include the popularity of universities, the growing popularity of universities. This is a very Eurocentric view, okay? I was raised as a suburban white kid, a Gen Xer in public school, so I got a very Eurocentric view. But this should not be limited. There's a, advances in universities, and in, um, I think the oldest university is in Pakistan. But in any case, so this is sort of a Eurocentric point of view. But um, certainly in Europe, around the 12th century, the 13th century, we saw the emergence of universities. And universities, I think, are important because we get more of a uniform, cohesive narrative. Right, and, uh, and if you question that, we'll just think in terms of like um, terminology, right? You have a common place where information is distributed, and if you have a common terminology or you have common notation, if you're a fan of mathematics, um, that really helps, okay? You have a nice cohesive view. So I, I think that that's a big part of the modern era, the po growing popularity of university. The printing press, we all know about Gutenberg. The printing press, calculus, mathematical calculus, Mathematical, cal mathematical calculus. The Greeks got fairly close. They got very close, all the way up to almost Zeno's paradox, but they didn't quite get there. Took Leibniz and Newton um, 1,600 years later. The refinement, I always include this one, I think this is important, the refinement and theory of optics, like spectacles. Reading spectacles, that's a big deal, right? Now people with defective vision might be able to read or see better, and telescopes. Okay, so... That, this is the modern era. This is the modern era, hallmarked by materialism and empiricism. I should say, just as a reminder, that um, nowadays the word materialism can mean two very distinct things. So you have the modern notion of materialism, which is kind of what we're going to be using here today for the most part, which basically suggests that... Um, Everything, even human cognition, human imagination, is ultimately shaped by purely, call them, uh, material or mechanical or chemical processes. Postmodern materialism, on the other hand, that probably in most conversations, like coffee shop conversations, probably refers to postmodern Materialism, if you hear the word in common conversation, refers to probably, if I could say it in one word, consumerism. Okay. Another thing, modern empiricism. So, missing, we actually covered this um, two, two sermons ago in the series, the Renaissance. So, the modern era was really sort of the result of a hearkening back to what was apparently lost or what was sort of... Um, eh, reminisced about in the, with the Greeks and the uh, Romans. They called it the Renaissance. So the, kind of the re-enlightenment, re bringing back some of the thoughts about politics, about science, and so forth. However, it wasn't the exact same thing. So modern empiricism did something that uh, classical empiricism 
could not do, did not dare do, actually. So one of the things, so materialism, materialism, empiricism. I'm calling the ushering in of modernity, the modern era, around 1500, give or take. One thing is that modern empiricists completely siloed or separated the material from essence. I'm, calling, I'm using the word essence. You say immaterial. Two completely different things, material, immaterial. And as, like I said just a moment ago, since larger abstractions, things that are abstract are subordinate, like thought, cognition, it's abstract, it's about ideas, that's subordinate to the material world, right? Well, that means if abstract things are subordinate to material things or things that can be measured, that also means that anything having to do with essence, like a deeper meaning, also has to be subordinate. This is a modern phenomenon. And I would go as far as to say that I think most people nowadays believe that it as, it, it, it's at this point, the total subordination or the subjugation of essence, deeper meaning, human thought, human cognition, and I don't like to use the word, but spirituality, if, you, if, you're, if you're okay with that word, that it is at this point where modern materialism and empiricism fractured science over here, church over here. And there are lots of criticisms that we can, I mean, this is not just my imagination. I mean, there's lots of criticisms. There's been a tremendous amount of material authored on this topic. There's lots of them we can count on. Um, we just call it the, one of them um, a consequence of the separation, right? Everything is subordinate to the material world. If you can't measure it, it's not important. It's materialism and empiricism. The modern quantification of faith, this tendency to quantify everything, it's still alive and well today. Do it all the time. <clears throat> I have some examples here. There's another one that's much more subtle, and I got an example of that. Maybe you'll like it, maybe you won't. Call it the Christian cowing of language. Cowing, I mean exactly what I'm saying, cowing, C-O-W-I-N-G, like to cow, to sh shrink away. Hey, first, language. This is a long discussion, but um, I, I, I like to point it out. I, it certainly resonates with me, and maybe uh, it will or won't with you. Um, the use of the, just the use, the way people use the word spiritual or religious. Think about the way that the usage of these words, the context of these words, the way they just fall into conversation. Well, the first thing is that these terms, spiritual, re religion, or religious, spirituality, very poorly defined, right? It's going to mean different things to different people. The default meaning, I think, of these words um, imply that they are, what? Set apart, right? It's different. You talk about spirituality. This is set apart from the reasoned, predictable, mechanical world in which we all live. So it's separate, okay? Although, although it is separate, but although we, we could watch like a Christian broadcast on a big screen TV, okay? They're not completely separate. But at the very least, the word spiritual or religious, I think for most people in most conversations, suggest some collection of customs, conventions, upon which practitioners may be assessed and measured. Okay, here's the one I was going to, I don't know how you're going to feel about this. This is, this is one of my pet peeves. Okay, so I figured this is it. I don't know if I'll get invited to preach again. So this is going to be my big salvo here for this one. This is one of my pet peeves. I can't be too critical of this because I myself do it. Okay, I catch myself doing it. You notice the way the word just, J-U-S-T. I can't do it in reverse. J-U-S-T, like that for you. Just, just as an adverb. <clears throat> so, to illustrate what I mean here by just as an adverb, I'm going to read uh, the beginning of Albert Einstein's famous special relativity paper. This was published in 1905. Uh, of course, I'm going to read the English translation here. Um, <clears throat> you ready for this? Very short. Okay. The results of an electrodynamic investigation published by me recently in this journal led to a very interesting conclusion, comma, which shall be derived here. 
Get that? Notice that Albert Einstein does not say, I just want to derive uh, some conclusions from my previous work. I just hope to derive some conclusions. Which shall be derived here? <clears throat> this sort of use of the word just as an adverb is something um, apparently one only hears in church anymore or when listening to Christian broadcasts, when people start talking about spirituality. Have you ever noticed that people say, I just want to pray that, or I just give thanks that, yada, yada, yada. Hey, I don't just want to pray, or we don't just don't want to pray, I hope. We pray. We pray. We don't need just. You can get just out of there. We don't just want to give thanks to Lord God most high. We thank God. Okay. Cowing of language. Cowing of language. It's pretty subtle. Pretty nitpicky, I think. Okay, here's something less subtle. Okay, mentioned it a second ago. I'll give you a couple of examples. Quantification of faith. Quantification of faith. We quantify everything, right? We quantify everything. Books on effective prayer. This proliferation of, we call them, they're self-help in the genre of self-help, but they're Christian, Christian. It's Christian self-help, right? Books on effective prayer. Okay, how to be a better Christian. Um, or um, uh, if you want to look at it from more of the science side, okay, that's sort of like Christian publication science side, uh, you may or may not be aware of this. There's a sort of a proliferation over the past 10, 20 years. Uh, scientific research investigating the health benefits of certain very Christian-like virtues. Big one that made some acclaim, made mainstream media, was gratitude. Some scientists had linked having a grateful attitude in people was connected to health benefits. That's a quantification of faith. Okay? Now, oh, and one of my favorites, and I get this all the time because just, I've, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but on Facebook, I've been roped into a few groups that are really big on really zealous and at times almost heretical arguments between secular atheists and Christians. And so they talk about like, you know, Noah's Ark or the flood and stuff like that. And one of the ones I hear gets repackaged in a lot of different ways is um, you hear like an argument. I'm not proud of this, okay. But it's a friend, so I feel obliged to check it out and give him a thumbs up every once in a while. I hear this. Maybe you've heard it in one way, shape, form, fashion, or another. Arguments between Christians and atheists where the big Christian revelation or the big Christian salvo is to question the accuracy of carbon dating or something. Everything gets quantified. That's my thesis here. Okay. Let me, let me take a sip. Okay. Now, first thing at this point. Is there anything really wrong with any of this? Right? I mean, the whole just thing, that's kind of like a personal thing, a pet peeve. Just as an adverb, just as an adverb. Maybe that's not cowing. Maybe that's not cowing. Maybe it's just expressing humility. And what's wrong with humility? Okay? Um, and what's wrong with gaining instruction for prayer or to be a better Christian? And what's wrong with making a scientific investigation on how certain attitudes, or if you want to call them virtues, can bestow benefits to a person. There's really nothing wrong with any of that. And, and this is, we go back to the original question from 20 minutes ago at the very start about being cynical. Wouldn't it be natural to assume that subordinating the immaterial to the material produce more rational and consistent reasoning in human affairs? That makes perfect sense, right? We have a reasoned, logical, measurable, material, concrete world, and surely we can use that to advance the human condition. Uh, I want to. This is what I meant to say about making some last-second updates. I, I included this in here. I'll mention it um, just very briefly. Some Christian historians will will say, just passing through the topic of modernity. They'll say something like that with modernity. This, we're talking about modernity, the 1500s. Um, and I was reminded of this reading a book, actually. Um, 
a Peter Lightheart book, uh, to say modernity brought with it liberal democracy, or cla- say classical liberalism and pluralism, which is true. And then there's something about, from the Christian sensibility, you read that, I think most people would read that, classical liberalism and pluralism. I just don't like the sound of that. It's like that's something that's not good. Okay, but in any case, um, we've sort of gone, we've approached this from a slightly different direction here. Unlike pretty much any other time in history, our culture is entrenched, it's seemingly entrenched in fundamental contradictions. And this has been a topic of... um, sermons that Damon has preached on, just in a somewhat ancillary way. I'm not going to talk about the bloodshed, the tragedies, the wars over the last 200 years. That's an easy target. Deliberate starvation, civil wars, just even over the last 100 years. Something's wrong. Somehow, and this this is a topic sort of way beyond my pay grade, but somehow we've ended up in a place where we seem to have this coexistence between the utterly fantastic and the seemingly rational. This is fantastic, these extravagant fictions, and like, oh, that kind of makes sense. And the, well, some examples I use, you could probably think of your own, but these are just so perfect. Um, the movie uh, Birth of a Nation, the movie Reefer Madness, um, the phenomena of Satanic Panic, just completely hysterical. I mean, so far into the realm of fantasy and fiction, I mean, you can't, you can barely keep from laughing, I mean, if it wasn't so sad and, and horrible. And yet, at the time, people were like, oh, this makes perfect sense. This is, seems perfectly reasoned and rational. And we've reached a point where seemingly we can enforce, enforce liberty, force freedom. <clears throat> by restricting behavior, liberally restricting behavior, even up to the point of mass incarceration. We have a very consumer society where everyone wants something more. We want something more. Everyone wants something more. One of my favorite quotes, it's kind of a long quote. I shall regale you with it presently, if you'll indulge me here. Uh, You may be familiar with this individual, Daniel Borston. He was... uh, the librarian for the U.S. Library of Congress, otherwise known as Librarian of Congress, which I prefer. But that doesn't seem like a super lofty title, but that's a big deal because they only have what they, like a head librarian. Daniel Borston for about 12 years, maybe 40 years ago. Okay, so just hang in there with me. It's kind of a long quote. I think you'll like it. And it's been slightly adapted here. Um, We have used our wealth of technology to create the thicket of unreality which stands between us and the facts of life. We want to believe these illusions because we suffer from extravagant expectations. When we pick up the newspaper at breakfast, we expect, we even demand that it bring us momentous events since the night before. We expect our two-week vacations to be romantic, exotic, cheap, and effortless. We expect anything and everything. We expect the contradictory and the impossible. We expect compact cars, which are spacious, luxurious cars, which are economical. We expect to be rich and charitable, powerful and merciful, active and reflective, kind and competitive. We expect... We expect to be inspired by mediocre appeals for excellence, to be made literate by illiterate appeals for literacy, to go to a church of our choice and yet feel its guiding power over us, to revere God and to be God. Never have people been more the masters of their environment, yet never has a people felt more deceived and disappointed for never has a people expected so much more than the world could offer. So this is the transition point in uh, today's sermon. It's about the two-thirds point, two-thirds of the way done. So clearly, we said earlier that this subordination of essence and meaning to the empirical and the material is not solely responsible for got the science over here and church over here. 
There's clearly something else happening here. Empiricism alone cannot, cannot have this sort of effect on culture and society so broad and deep. This, the thicket of unreality, to quote Borston. So something else is happening here. So we're going to fast forward about 300 years to the early 19th century, very early 19th century, and we find the convergence of some key ingredients. And we actually preached about this in part six, touched on a little bit in part six. So the first thing, ingredients, some key ingredients. 1800, say 1800. What is that? 221 years ago, give or take. First thing that happened, these are major transformative events. Okay, the first thing that happened is I'm calling the fall of mathematical determinism, which is a total misnomer. Don't, if you ever get this question on a test, don't say that. But it's a good description. I, actually, technically what I'm talking about, believe it or not, is called the end body problem. So now understand that the horsepower for empiricism, remember materialism, modernity, materialism, empiricism. The horsepower for empiricism, or materialism, is mathematics. And the development of calculus, remember calculus, uh, over the previous century, um, or a little bit more, held the promise that math can perfectly describe empirical processes. And this is a match made in heaven. Can you imagine this renaissance? It is all the development of all these sciences, optics, right? B architecture, building, materials, chemistry, new metal, metallurgy, metal alloys, this explosion, right, this luxury of results by applying the scientific method. And now all of a sudden you have a tool in mathematics that purports or offers the prospect of being able to fully mathematically describe everything you're doing. What an amazing, amazing thing. Well, it turned out it wasn't true, okay? Uh, yeah, so sorry to burst the, the bubble, but um, it wasn't so, the end body problem. And by the way, this also gave rise to what would later become, much later become known in the 1950s, 60s, 70s. It was popularized as chaos theory. Okay. Math just can't do this. Even very simple systems, dynamic systems, are completely intractable mathematically. So that's the first thing. The other thing is the Industrial Revolution in, in Europe. These are out of sync here. We had our Industrial Revolution here in the States. They had theirs in Europe about 100 years before. 80 years before, or not the Industrial Revolution, but the consequences of the Industrial Revolution. Very, even very early in the Industrial Revolution, um, despite the excitement, harnessing steam power doesn't seem like a very exciting thing nowadays, but back then, can you imagine you just throw some wood in and you turn all these sprockets and gears and you can run lathes and mills and do all sorts of amazing things just by burning stuff? That was like revolutionary. That's like, look at all this stuff we can do. Mass production, right? But even early on, it had become obvious that um, it came at a big price, okay? <clears throat> very long work hours for workers, very unfamiliar work environments, industrial accidents, horrible industrial accidents, burns, amputations, death. And even early on, people were noticing that these mysterious illnesses would sort of break out in communities that were kind of located near some of the industry. Dehumanization, dehumanization, machines, dehumanization, the dehumanizing of mechanization, dehumanizing mechanization. Have you ever seen uh, that's not in my notes here, uh, Metropolis, Fritz Lang. That, of course, would be 110 years later after this. <clears throat> but in any case. Okay, so what came from all this? So I I'm going to read a slightly modified definition from Britannica. However, what we're going to do here, just to add some excitement, is uh, I I'm going to replace the thing we're defining with the letter X. Okay, we'll make a little game out of it. You can try to guess. We, I, we actually preached about this. If you listen to part six, you know, you, you kind of know what's coming. Um, I, I just love suspense here. Okay, so this is a pretty brief... Uh, well, it's moderate. It's shorter than the Borston uh, quote definition. X, X 
can generally be characterized as including the following principles. One, the common everyday world, this should hopefully be familiar, everything sort of, ideas, everything ties into what we're talking about. We're actually going somewhere with this. The common everyday world of things and embodied minds is not the world as it really is, but merely as it appears. Sounds kind of familiar, right? Um, Two, the best reflection of the world is not found in physical and mathematical categories, but in terms of a self-conscious mind. And three, Thought is the relation of each particular experience with the infinite whole of which it is an expression, rather than, rather than the imposition of ready-made forms upon given material. That last one is a little bit convoluted here. But anyway, what is X? What uh, can be ca- uh, characterized by these three principles? Like I said, we talked about this in part six. Idealism. Probably the least credited and most influential force, destructive force, in the world in which we live. And actually, that's the main thesis of the whole series, is we think of materialism, materialism, subordinating the spiritual. Idealism is way more toxic. However, at the time, idealism, early idealism, there's classical idealism, but when it was reinvigorated during the modern era, it seemed to be ver- it seemed to provide some very desirable things. So it seemed to reintroduce in an intellectually respectable way. Because remember, intellectual respectability is a big thing in modernity, right? Logos, telos, reason, um, measurability, mathematics. <clears throat> in an intellectually respectable way, reintroduce essence, that abstract stuff. Uh, Intrinsic human value, for example. We can reintroduce, right, these very abstract things into intellectual discourse. And it serves, apparently, as a means of sating our, everybody's need for meaning and purpose, right? Essence, something more important than what can be measured. Also be said in its early manifestation to re-enliven meaning in a world that had completely divested itself of anything beyond what we can measure with an instrument. So, two things happened. One of them happened right away, and you can probably guess what happened with idealism. The first thing that happened right away is it became immediately subordinated by empiricism. Okay. So it just didn't, it had like no half-life at all. The classical example, and I don't want to get political here, but this is a classic textbook example of this. The, the, the subordinating of a fairly noble sort of reintroduction of philo- philosophical thought into modern thinking, idealism, subordinating it back into the purely empirical um, occurred in the political, like political or uh, social stage of social science. Um, so uh, George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel uh, made, I think, a reasonable attempt to reintroduce essence into intellectual dialogue with his absolute idealism. And, uh, but uh, Hegel was a major uh, influence on Karl Marx, who uh, basically took Hegel's absolute idealism and bolted every imaginable sort of material concrete thing onto it. So that was kind of the end of that. So that absolute idealism sort of is not really even in conversations much anymore. The other thing that happened with idealism is more of a postmodern phenomenon. And it is very alive and well now. It's a very real thing. Postmodern idealism. It did not give a face to essence, but rather individually projected ideals. You think about people talk about they have ideals. Right? They have ideals. What does that mean? They have, you, know, you can even talk about being an idealist, like uh, an optimist. People talk about being an idealist. It's like, oh, you're, you're an optimist. Right? Um, and we have ideals. And even the word values is sometimes used in a pejorative way. It was like I remember in the 90s. Like fam- they made a joke out of like family values. <clears throat> so individually, postmodern idealism, I'm arguing, is really about, it's really individually projected values. Things that are internally constructed. 
So in the very best case, the earlier case, the modern case, idealism just becomes nothing more than a, a mere, another delegate of empiricism. In the worst case, in the, in the current case, postmodern, in the postmodern case, it is really a subjectively driven counterfeit. It is a counterfeit for essence. And talk about being cynical, uh, if uh, one is willing to be sufficiently cynical, we could even say that we talk, think about idealism now. We talk about having values. They become, unfortunately, personal affectations. They're like affectations, meaning that they're these sort of constructed ideals um, that seem to fill like a deeper longing for higher purpose, for essence. But it's like putting a slug in a gumball machine. You know, it fills up space. It takes up space. Maybe you'll get the gumball out, or maybe you'll jam the machine. Personal affectation, ideals, values, internally constructed, they are incredibly empowering, especially in a society like we see currently, because it makes us feel powerful. Our ideals make us feel powerful because we can condemn others for not living up to them. That's what I mean by an affectation. Okay, here we go, almost done. Finally, Luke 19, verses 1 through 10, we're really focused on the, the transaction here. Verses 1 through 7 is kind of, I'll call it the setup. I'm going to go read it. I'm reading from, oh, I forgot which version I'm reading from. This may be the NIV, NIV but you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but the action really is verse 8 and verse 9. Okay, so I'll read this just for the sake of dutifully reading it here. So uh, chapter 19, starting at verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Verse 4. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. Verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Okay. What... What happened? What's the, what's the encounter here? Verse 8, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I had cheated, if I have cheated, excuse me, anyone, anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. Verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So, Considering what we've been talking about here, on one hand, first, there's not a lot happening here, right? It's very short. <clears throat> on one hand, the encounter is kind of expressed in material terms, right? You have over here, so he has wealth, whatever that means. So what do they have? Shekels back then, gold, possessions. So Zacchaeus was wealthy. So we can, re we can understand that. What does that mean? Well, we don't know exactly how wealthy he was, but we know what wealth is. We understand the fraction one half. It's a half of his stuff. What? The poor. So in purely material terms, we can, we can relate to this. There's no need to give us a lot more detail necessarily. And after all, right, charitability seems to be something a good Christian does. And seeking justice, right, if you've wronged, some, wronged somebody, try to make things right. That seems like a very Christian thing to do as well. But there's something very unsettling about this because... I don't think charity is sufficient, right, for understanding our creator through a son. I don't think it's sufficient. In fact, I don't even think it's necessary, to be honest. Not exactly sure. I don't think it's either. <clears throat> now, so there's something unsatisfying about this, right? The purely material aspect of it. You got stuff, be charitable, seek justice. He said, ultimately, right, the, the big punchline here is that he was saved. Like, that's, that's it. He just 
put a, put a quarter into the machine. And now, on the other hand, on the other hand, so empiricism, idealism. On the other hand, I'll tell you what my reaction might be to this. Verse 8 and verse 9. And perhaps your reaction as well. And perhaps the reaction of a lot of other people. Where's the rest of the story? This is like, it's like this on the page. The whole thing. For those of you listening to the podcast, I'm trying to make a small rectangle with my fingers. Seriously, look at your printed Bible. It's like this. The whole encounter, whoop, 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 saved. There's like nothing there. Where's the internal conflict? Where's the story arc? Where's the final triumph of the will? Where's all the good stuff? For example, I know what's going on. I know what Luke forgot to, to write or Luke left out. Sorry about that. Zacchaeus was undergoing marital strife. His wife wants to leave him for another tax collector. And this other tax collector is spreading lies about Zacchaeus to the big tax collector boss in hopes of gaining Zacchaeus' territory. And Zacchaeus has an abusive, alcoholic father who reveals to him he's dying from cancer. I got it. You'll like this. Zacchaeus has a son. Zacchaeus has a son. A gay son who wants to play football for his high school team. But the coach is a Sadducee. And he's afraid that if the coach finds out that he's gay, he won't let him play his favorite position, which is wide receiver. And now Zacchaeus has to descend into a deep, dark, complex tangle of emotion, conflict, adversity, only to rise up, rise above, and triumph against all odds. And then, then, and only then, I am Lord God. <laughs> wow! You're in. You're in, buddy. And, you know, the whole household, whole household, you're in too, everybody. That was very impressive, Zacchaeus. Just for the record, okay? There's a very fine line, maybe between uh, uh, blasphemy and being filled with the Spirit, or maybe too filled with the Spirit. None of that happened, okay? That's I'm try, I'm trying to make a point here. Tell you for sure, though. Tell you a stone fact. It's a good thing our good friend Luke here went into medicine because he would have never made it as a Hollywood screenwriter. This is completely wrong. All the good stuff is mi- missing. There's nothing there. Just two sentences, depending on how you do the punctuation, salvation. So, so what happened? What happened? Have you reflected on that? Is it that simple? Where's all this stuff? Don't we expect so much more? Don't we expect something, something that agrees with our internal constructed values and ideals about what triumph is, about what being a good person is, right? Completely rubs all that the wrong way. So what happened? We all know what happened, okay? And I'll mention that Ben Ross preached on this um, coping with kingship. It's on the church website. You could give it a listen if you got time. What happened? Well, I can't speak for you. I'll just speak for myself. I know what happened, and honestly, I don't want to. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to have to deal with it. Okay. Maybe you feel the same way. Maybe on a good day. Maybe not so much. Maybe on a bad day, you just don't want to have to deal with it at all. But we all know what what happened here. We all know what the message is. The hardest thing anyone can ever come to terms with. In fact, save for God's 
our Father's grace and calling, it would be completely impossible. Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jonah, Job, Daniel, Ezekiel, even I am the Most High in corporeal form on planet Earth, have something in common. And if you look here, the symbol of the fall. Anybody notice that, that the Apple logo is a symbol of the fall? Put a minus sign in front of this. What didn't happen here? Right? Submission. Submission. Zacchaeus submitted. Okay. Why not a third of his belongings to the poor. That way, because we all know he was eyeing this nice beachfront property, and if he would have just saved himself a little money, a third, he could have gotten away with it. I bet if he haggled a little bit, he could have gotten away with a third, or two-thirds, then it might have been the whole neighborhood got saved. Right? That's ridiculous. Okay? None of that stuff really matters. Zacchaeus saw the genuine article, he knew what it was, and he submitted. And that's just how that happened to be manifest at that particular point in time. And that, folks, is, as the saying goes, that. So, so, uh, what do you do? Let's pray together. What's the worst that can happen? Heavenly Father, We thank you for our fellowship here. We thank you for the guests that you have brought us. We thank you for our health, and we thank you for your protection and your forgiveness and your patience. We thank you for the extravagant flourish of creation that you have provided, not just one flower or 10 flowers or 100 flowers, but thousands of flowers, not just one type of tree, thousands of types of trees, the extravagant flourish of your creation. Never let us take it it for granted. We ask that you guide us in the following week, that you give us hearts to seek your will and give us forgiving hearts so that we can forgive others the way you've forgiven us or we can at least strive to. We ask that you give us the courage to seek your will and we ask that you give us all the more courage to submit to your will. We pray in the name of the sacrifice you made at Calvary through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.